Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series. It's a real pleasure to be with you this morning um, and to be here on what we know as the birthday of the church, the day when we celebrate the Holy Spirit and uh, being poured out for all and empowering us to go. And so... I've done something weird to my hair now. That was a terrible idea. But anyway, of course, what we're going to do today, we're, we're of course going to go and read Acts 2. Um, it's where it all began. But before we do that, I want to take us on a small detour, actually, and go all the way. It's quite a big detour, actually. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis. Um, and we're going to read Genesis 11, 1 to 9. So if you've got your Bibles with you, open them up. Um, and we're going to read this together. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in China and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone, tar for mortar, and then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. The Lord said, is, is if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from, from there all over the earth and stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. You know, this is such, it's a brief story, and yet in it, I believe it holds so much revelation for us. Uh, you know, uh, I, I kind of want to start off by debunking the myth that um, God was threatened by um, the people of Babel and the unitedness to build a big tower. Um, I want to point you to the verse where it says, God came down to see. And, um, you know, their greatest feat, God had to come down to see. It's, it's not about him being threatened. The reason that God scatters them and confuses them because he had a greater plan for them and that he knew that their plan for themselves was limited and he had much better things in store. You know, Babel, uh, the Babel story sits within the greater context of Genesis and the author throughout Genesis, when we get up to this point, he's consistently highlighted two things. The first being God's plan to bless mankind his plan to uh, provide him with that which is good. The second thing we see, man's failure to trust God and enjoy the good which God had provided. You know, I want to highlight just a couple of reasons why Babel wasn't a good idea for them. Because maybe to us, even now, we're going, sounded like, all right, they were united, they are building towers. Sounds great. Um, it wasn't great because, um, because a couple of reasons. One, they move, moving east was to move further out of the blessing of God. Uh, we see um, earlier in Genesis that Cain had already moved east and founded the city of Enoch. The people who were once united in that land, these same people, then split again and moved east to build a new city. God knows that this will happen again, that they'll keep splitting. And each time that they do, they will move further and further out of his blessing. Blessing in Genesis is kind of shown through the provision of good land. And so to leave this land was to seek, and to seek another was to forfeit this blessing of God and to live, if you will, east of Edom. 
But you're going to go, Amy, they were united. Yeah, they were united, but they were united for selfish gain. They were united to make a name for themselves. It's very clear the builders are explicit. We want to build this city to make a name for ourselves. They wanted to be known as great, and yet they're running away. They're moving further and further away from a God who promises to make them great, who knows them intimately, who knows who they are. You know, they want to make names for themselves so that they won't be scattered, so they, uh, so they, won't, they wouldn't be unknown, so they would have an identity. And yet we know at the end of the story that the, thing, the very thing that they feared, and so in their own power try and do, is actually what happens to them, that they are scattered. And actually, not even just scattered, that their, their language is confused so they can't unite again. You know, the characteristic mark of man's failure up until this point has been his attempt to grasp the good on his own, rather than trust God to provide it for him. God, in his grace, he saw that that plan would succeed. He knew that he'd build a tower but he also knew that what would happen after, which was that they split again and do other things again, it was in their nature. And so he moves to rescue them from those very plans and return them back, return them back to the land of blessing. And so he scatters them and confuses the language back into the land of blessing and confuses their language so that they won't unite again because he wants to lead them back into the promise provided. You know, the story of Babel only ends with just a hint of that return to the the land of blessing. Yet Genesis 12, it makes it explicit. It says this in Genesis 12, it says, the Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. God promises to make their name great the very reason they built the city in the first place. God knows our heart and he always desires to give us good things. just want to say, that wasn't in my notes, I just wanted to say that. You know, for me, Babel perfectly epitomizes the whole of the Old Testament of a God who longs to provide and a people who constantly fail to trust in God and wait for that blessing. And so when we get to Acts 2, which we're going to come to in just a second, we need to understand that when they're waiting in the upper room, they've been waiting for just longer than those 40 days since Jesus left. They've been waiting for ever really since the conception of their nation. They've been waiting for this promise that they somehow hadn't managed to grasp yet. And they've been waiting. It was, it was a long-awaited promise. And oh my word, did God provide. Let's read Acts 2 together. When the Holy Spirit came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like a sound of a the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Now there, staying in Jerusalem, were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, are all these uh, who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? A load of names, I'm not going to read them. I've tried multiple times, I can't pronounce any of them. Verse 12, and at the end of verse 11 it says, we hear them declaring wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Sometimes you need to know when to admit defeat. Reading those list of names was not an option. 
You know, this, um, this, this is in such great con- a contrast to the story of Babel. In Acts, we see a people united again for one cause, not to make a name for themselves, not for selfish gain, but centered around a savior, trusting in what he said when he said, we see it in Acts 1, don't we? When he says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised. The gift that my father promised. Love these words, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They trusted, they trusted, and they were united to wait for the promise to come. They waited and relied on God to provide the blessing, and the blessing came. And what I find so special is that the promise, the outpouring, came in ways that they would recognize and perceive that it was God and God alone who was the provider. And it was ways that they could perceive that this was, in fact, the promised Holy Spirit. And it comes in um, three three ways, wind, fire, and speech. Wind, um, just kind of linguistically, uh, is rooted linguistically, because ruah and numa, the two words used, uh, mean kind of wind or spirit. Um, Ezekiel 37 uh, prophesied of the wind as the breath of God giving life to dry bones. And it was this wind of God's spirit that Judaism looked forward to as ushering the final messianic age, i.e. when the Messiah would come back or will come, not come back, come. This wind from heaven was the presence of God's spirit among them in a more intimate, personal and powerful way than they have ever experienced we see in John 20, 22, don't we, that he says, receive the Holy Spirit and he breathes on them. I love that verse. I almost missed it out, but we just managed to get it in, in time. Um, <coughs> the, the fire, fire was so clearly known as a symbol of God's presence. We've seen it, don't we, with the burning bushes, the pillar of fire that guided Israel, the consuming fire on Mount Sinai, and the fire that hovered over the wilderness tabernacle. John the Baptist is reported as having explicitly linked the coming of the Holy Spirit with fire. We see speech in Old Testament times, prophetic utterances were regularly associated with the Spirit's coming, but it was for particular people and for special purposes. In Judaism, however, this uh, belief arose that it kind of died out with the prophets, and yet somehow they still believed that when the, the messianic age would come, that a prophecy would be reignited and there would be a special outpouring of God's spirit. God came as they would recognize, and he pours Holy Spirit out on them abundantly. You know that there is, of course, nothing necessarily sensory about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't need to come with signs and wonders, but often he accompanies um, himself with audible and visible signs. Why? So that we know it's him. He's just that kind. I want to read you this um, like footnote from the Passion Translation, because um, I just love it. It says this, uh, this was the pillar of fire. This fire that came was a pillar of fire that led Israel from bondage into the promised land. The same pillar of fire manifested here to initiate a new beginning from dead religious structures into the powerful life of the spirit. Each believer received an overpowering flame of fire signified by the shaft that engulfed them. It was as though each one received his own personal pillar of fire um, that would empower him and lead him throughout his life. This was the promise Jesus gave to the disciples of the one like me who would be sent by the Father and never, ever leave them. Today, every believer is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. This was the birthday of the church. 
And we call it the birthday of the church because it was on this day that the church began and the church united. Luke so clearly presents throughout Acts the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost as as the birthday of the, the church. He parallels the Spirit's coming on Jesus at his baptism with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost for neither Jesus' ministry nor the mission of the early church would have been possible without Holy Spirit, without apart from Spirit's empowering. It's why in Acts 1, Luke so emphasizes uh, Jesus' explicit command to wait um, until they were empowered from on high. You know, and this empowering comes, it comes both inwardly and outwardly. There are two Greek words used here, fulfilled. I'm going to butcher both of them. Get ready. In verse 2, it's pleru, which means filled inwardly. In verse 4, it is pletho, which means filled outwardly or furnished and equipped. This was the anointing of the Spirit for ministry, and every believer needs both. We need the filling of the Spirit, Spirit inwardly for life, but outwardly for ministry. As they are empowered, it flows into them, out through them, and it goes onto the streets. It draws a crowd, and this, it's a crowd that speaks many different languages, and yet they're hearing their own language being spoken, they're hearing it, and then speak. These Galileans speak in their own native tongue. And I love this, um, because and I, this was my favourite thing I read all week in the commentaries, which was Galileans were known as butcherers of language, and for someone like me who butchers even her own language, um, it's very comforting. Um, Galileans had difficulty pronouncing gutturals and had the habit of swallowing syllables when speaking. So they were looked down upon by people as just, just real plebs, like, just like they were like uncouth people. Um, so when, when they hear these disciples, they're like, it's the Galileans who are speaking our own tongue. There's no way on earth that these Galileans could be speaking my language because they, they don't even speak their own word. How? What? It's the bewilderment that follows. It's a lot to do with the fact that it was Galileans speaking it. You see, what we have in Acts 2 is the universal remedy to the curse of Babel, where human beings were divided by languages, yet now in Christ, through the through the Spirit, the language of the Spirit unifies us all in him. We are unified, one spirit, one body, no longer united for our own cause, to make our own name great, but united around a saviour who is the greatest name of all, who sent us Holy Spirit to fill us inwardly and empower us in our own life, but also to fill us outwardly to equip us and empower us to go out into all the world. So Pentecost, it's a day that we celebrate. It's like, honestly, guys, celebrate today. It's, it's the start of the church. It's the outpouring of Holy Spirit. It's, it's through Holy Spirit that we're united, we're equipped. We receive the fullness of the promise, the fullness of the blessing that God intended to bestow upon us right uh, all the way along, right from the beginning. It's a day of celebration. And I really want to end today just before Nathan comes, and we're going to have, uh, I think we're going to have a worship song as well before Nathan comes to pray over us. But I want to celebrate by celebrating the many languages that we speak in this church. It's um, always been my favorite thing about this church is its internationality. Our internationality as a church is not representative of, of the area we live in, but yet it is so representative of the kingdom of God, and I love it. And so um, I have pestered, badgered, annoyed people this week to send me them um, saying some words in their own language. 
Some of them, it's their, their, their first, first language, it's their native tongue. Others, it is maybe the language of their fathers or grandfathers. But the important thing is, is it's somewhere along their heritage that they've spoken their languages. And I've tried to get as many people as possible, and I haven't managed to get everybody. But let's celebrate this. Celebrate the fact that we're diverse. Celebrate the fact that we're united around Christ. And celebrate that the Spirit, through the Spirit, we all speak one language, which is the language that unites us, the language that fills us, the language that brings us together and unites us around God. So let's watch that video. They're going to say, come, Holy Spirit. As we believe, I love you, Jesus, we are here in Duela.